Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. Brexit means Brexit. The campaign was fought, the vote was held, turnout was high, and the public gave their verdict. There must be no attempts to remain inside the EU, no attempts to rejoin it through the back door, and no second referendum. The country voted to leave the European Union, and it is the duty of the government and parliament to make sure we do just that. So in that clip there, um, current British Prime Minister Theresa May talking about Brexit. Uh, and that speaks to the larger topic that we'll be diving into today, which is nationalism. And it's come back within mainstream politics, um, particularly focused on Europe. Um, we're going to take a pin and put that, uh, put a pin in the United States for this episode and, and really focus on nationalism in uh, European countries. Exactly. And last summer, this referendum that resulted in the UK voting to leave the EU was, was a bit of a shocker, uh, somewhat unexpected for, for some of us on this side of the ocean. But, you know, a closer look reveals that perhaps this didn't happen in isolation. In recent years, nationalist views have been perceived as making a comeback in mainstream European politics. A core sentiment rooted in the Leave movement in Britain was a rejection of globalization and, as an extension, a rejection of the main principles of a European Union. And it's likely not a coincidence uh, that the rise of nationalism has coincided with the current refugee crisis in the Middle East and the subsequent impact it's had on migration to Europe. For an increasing number of Europeans, the combination of a lagging economy and the recent terrorist attacks in Paris, Brussels, Nice, and Berlin has opened the door to greater consideration of isolationist policies. And so if we look across Western Europe, seeing the rise, we, we see the rise of nationalist political parties with strong anti-immigrant views, um, examples of which include the Austrian Freedom Party, the Finns Party, which is a, a nationalist party in Finland, and uh, a major example is the Alternative for Germany, which is a party um, that has seen increasing popularity, uh, in particular being seen as a sign of discontent with, among other things, the current immigration policies espoused by German Chancellor Angela Merkel. So is the EU on the verge of fragmentation? What are the consequences of this pattern of nationalism and the rise of right-wing governments across the region? To take us through this very interesting and relevant topic, we have Dr. Akeem Herlman joining us as our guest today. Dr. Herlman currently serves as director of the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies and as associate director for the Center of European Studies at Carleton University. He was awarded the Jean Monnet Chair Democracy in the European Union in 2015. He is one of the leading ca Canadian scholars of European integration. He has published two monographs and six edited volumes, most recently, The Legitimacy of Regional Integration in Europe and the Americas. His articles have appeared in some of the top journals in the field. 
including European Journal of Political Research, European Political Science Review, and European Law Journal. So, Dr. Holman, thank you so much for joining us today on Policy Talks. My pleasure. Uh, let's just start off with a question of why nationalist sentiment has become so prominent in Europe during the past few years. I think there's a couple of longer-term factors and then a number of short-term factors as well. So longer-term factors, I think everywhere nationalism has been rising in response to globalization, particularly amongst demographics that have perceived themselves as being losers of globalization. In Europe, that is being exacerbated by the European integration process, which uh, people who defend European integration often portray as a response to globalization, but uh, many citizens see as part and parcel of globalization as, as further exacerbating the um, the softening up of uh, established boundaries. So those are the long-term factors. And then in the short term, I think uh, the impact of the refugee crisis after 2015 cannot be overstated because it, uh, it was it, it has been perceived by many people as being an uncontrolled influx of people into European countries, which uh, they perceive as a threat, even though, of course, it's not necessarily that, but that's how it's being perceived, and that's why it has been given, giving a boost to these nationalist and populist movements. So then, in your opinion, um, would you say, balancing the long-term long trend that you kind of alluded to, and then what the current situation kind of these 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 situations that have popped up in in the more recent term um what what has been more influential like i guess what i'm asking is was was the rise in nationalism that we see now in many european uh, western european countries was that always in your opinion going to be a thing eventually or or was it really these these current situations the migration crisis particularly out in the middle east was that really the catalyst that kind of sprouted this movement out uh, yeah, well, that was definitely something that has made it more pronounced. It's not that these movements are new. Right. So um, we are talking about France a lot at the moment. So the Front National is actually has been around for decades and has been successful uh, in the past, even though uh, it seems like they will be particularly successful in this year's presidential election. And likewise, in the Netherlands, we had um, movements, uh, populist movements, uh, uh, anti-immigration movements already in the early 2000s. So it's not that this is entirely new, but with the uh, refugee crisis, a topic has uh, has appeared that has given them a lot of ammunition to mobilize further support. So then, if the if the the, the, the migration crisis is kind of the um, uh, the catalyst for this, where do you see? longer term the the popular support so you mentioned you know in in France the support for for uh, uh, the the right wing party um, or the the nationalist party in in France and how the impact that that might have in, in the upcoming presidential elections is this something that that could be sustained this movement or do you think that that the the, the popularity of nationalism is really a, a blip on the radar and that the 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 excitement for for nationalist policies and nationalist politics will subside. 
I would be hopeful that uh, it is at least this current uh, uptick is a temporary development. Um, but uh, all the longer term factors, of course, remain there. So it's not that it will entirely disappear. So there will be some fluctuations, but at a significant level in some countries of around 20% or 15 or so of the vote in elections um, has uh, even before the refugee crisis gone to these far right populist nationalist parties. And I don't see that uh, as being something that will disappear. Currently, uh, they have a particular good time in their perception and that's in part due to the uh, refugee crisis in part due to diffusion effects so watching other countries watching Donald Trump watching the success of Brexit and all that gives uh, these parties and their supporters the feeling that now is their time and that I think will hopefully pass um, but uh, the uh, underlying causes uh, obviously uh, will not go away. So you mentioned uh, watching the success of Brexit and what's going on with Trump as kind of a uh, a way to inspire this movement. So to what degree do you think a revival uh, um, in nationalism in one country is actually influencing or, or uh, causing a similar sentiment in other countries? It, that is definitely the case. I mean, it's not just for nationalist movements. We've, we've seen in European politics effects where certain movements in one country uh, uh, will, uh, after a while, spill over into other countries. We had in the early 1990s, for instance, all kinds of very neoliberal uh, social democratic parties that sort of tried to reinvent themselves with the third way slogan and so on. And a lot of different countries beginning in Great Britain, Germany and so on uh, were um, following along that line and then it subsided and there was a shift back towards more traditional Christian democratic or conservative parties and now we seem to have this, this uh, populist movement. So it's not new that uh, uh, these uh, countries are watching each other and uh, developments in one country have an effect on others and uh, in particularly these uh, populists they have learned to cooperate for a long time uh, that was uh, actually difficult for them nationalists of various countries don't necessarily get along well uh, but right now um, they do and they've uh, ha just had a meeting in Koblenz in Germany where uh, many of the main leaders were there Le Pen was there Wilders from the Netherlands was there the German alternative for Deutschland hosted it um, so um, uh, and that contributes of course to these uh, effects of sort of um, trying to capitalize on uh, people's success elsewhere that almost sounds there, there almost seems to be a bit of irony in that sense of, of nationalism and, and kind of isolationist policies and saying you know we want to move away from the European Union, for example, but you have all of the, the leaders of these nationalist parties <laughs> coming together and saying, well, we're better together. Like, let's put up a united front in, in, in that sense. So I don't know about you, that kind of, I don't know, that almost seems like a weird a weird juxtaposition. Yeah, it uh, might appear ironic, but but that is what what's happening. They do see each other as uh, allies, uh, fighting for the same goals, and they they most definitely see Donald Trump as part of of their movement as well. And uh, Nigel Farage, the leader mm. of the UK Independence Party, was in the European Parliament uh, last week, I think, or two weeks ago, with a Trump sticker on sure. his uh, on his uh, on his jacket. So that that is something that they are all. Trying to capitalize on if if globalization is the enemy, 
then the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I guess, the, the vibe I get from something like that. That's mm-hmm. correct, even though it's, in a way, a globalization of, of nationalism. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, you mentioned Nigel Farage, uh, and I'm glad you did, because that was the, the question I wanted to ask you. Um, Nigel Farage uh, was the former leader of the, the UK Independence Party and was also a member of the European Parliament. Um, or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, he is still a member oh, of still, the European still. Parliament. And um, every now and then, I see videos of him standing in the European Parliament, railing against the European Union, um, and those are always good um, good entertainment. Um, but the opinions that, that he, that he um, espouses and, and that other nationalist leaders uh, support um, in Europe uh, against the European Union and that the the European Union is the institutions are dysfunctional and they don't serve the best interests of Europeans. To what degree are those opinions justified? Well, certainly, I think in the long term perspective, there's no doubt that European integration has been hugely beneficial for Europe. has been has been very important in the peaceful development and economic development after the Second World War. So I think there can be no question about that. And this is something that these positions totally neglect. What they uh, focus on is uh, the perception, and that is real amongst many European citizens, that the EU is a remote institution uh, of which citizens citizens don't have the impression that they can really influence politics there. Uh, They lack an understanding of the quite complicated decision-making processes at the European level and uh, realize it's important but don't know exactly how, don't know exactly how they can influence it. And that is something that we should blame on the EU. Um, It's not necessarily um, the people working in Brussels who are responsible for that. Often it's actually the member states who prevent the European Union from becoming easier to understand, more transparent and all that. But uh, if it's perceived as uh, as uh, uh, an institutional entity, there is, uh, I think, a justified perception that the EU is kind of inaccessible mm. to citizens, particularly people who are, who are not sort of professionals in politics and engage with it every day. And that is, uh, that's a sentiment that uh, Farage and others try to exploit. You mentioned or you said there's no doubt that that because of the European Union, you know, the economies of of the uh, EU members have been lifted considerably versus maybe what would have been achieved if they were just striving as individual nations. So there's some that argue, let's shift over to the case of NAFTA, you know, that there are definitely gains, but they are unequally distributed. And moving that to the EU, would you say that that is perhaps the case, that there are definite gains and, you know, dismantling of certain industries and jobs? And so the reception of these gains is not necessarily equal among the members? Um, Yes, I think you can make that argument for the EU as well. And you can make it particularly for the Eurozone, those countries that have uh, adopted the euro as their currency. Mm -hmm. And that is why the Eurozone financial crisis since 2010 has been so damaging for the European Union, because uh, this is a crisis that in in many countries of the so-called periphery of the Eurozone, Greece most importantly, but also Spain, Portugal, Ireland, 
uh, to some extent Italy and so on. These countries um, have indeed uh, entered into uh, economic difficulties in part because of the architecture of the euro. And other countries such as Germany have handsomely profited from the euro. Um, it's not that uh, the countries that experience the crisis are, are totally absolved uh, from blame. They often uh, engaged in economic policies that, that were not wise and were sort of short-termist and, and didn't have the longer-term interest of the country um, adequately in consideration. But nevertheless, I think the, the Eurozone crisis did, uh, for, for, for good reasons, create this perception for the first time that there was really an imbalance and that, mm -hmm. that uh, Germany in particular was profiting and other countries uh, were um, on the short end of the stick for, for um, uh, the, of, of the Eurozone. Uh, I think that argument is more difficult to make for the general idea of the single European market, especially because uh, the single market is counterbalanced in Europe by policies such as the common agricultural policy, the so-called cohesion policy, which really try to support the, the more rural, more backwards region, uh, economically more backwards regions in Europe. Uh, so in that respect, it's not, uh, uh, I, I do think that all member states have actually profited from the single market, not necessarily all industries in each place and all that. There's always winners and losers, but it's not clear cut in terms of the, uh, if, if you look at the single market, the Eurozone uh, and the Euro, that's a bit of a different story. If the European Union, for whatever reason, fails or collapses. Speaking of the euro, what does that spell for the eurozone? What does that spell for the common currency? Will that fall as well? Um, I don't think either will fall, first mm -hmm. of all. I, I do think the European Union has been very successful always in muddling through and uh, uh, it, it uh, more or less uh, for its entire existence the European integration project has been set to be in crisis and it has uh, survived. Nevertheless this is indeed a very serious uh, uh, point in its history. Um, if it came to uh, an actual uh, dissolution or collapse I don't think we would see a reversal to individual member states but we would be seeing small smaller groupings of states which might well uh, retain a common currency, mm. a single market and so on. Uh, so I, I don't think there will be a return to uh, all the 28 member states being sort of entirely on their own. Um, just thinking more, more broadly about European nationalism as it is now and what has happened in certain countries, most, most, most notably with Brexit and then the upcoming elections in France and, and, and what um, the National Front is talking about uh, as part of their platform and how they would deal with the European Union uh, and what may come in other countries as well. The biggest question I have is, is how did the EU not see this coming? And if they did see this coming, how have they how how could they have handled this better because it seems to me that a lot of this is about it's it's a campaign it's 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 a war of information you know nationalist parties view it one way and you know in in terms of brexit they were able to sell that message to the right number of people to the majority of voters um, and somehow the stay side wasn't able to communicate their position well enough what could have been done better 
Well, I think you're right that this is a lot about communication. And uh, and uh, there's a big problem that uh, the benefits of European integration are not sold aggressively enough. Um, and in part that is because the European Union is so complicated and the member states have such a big role to play in its governance and they are not necessarily interested actually in that. Sometimes they are interested in having the EU as a scapegoat to blame for certain things. Um, and uh, as a result, in part of that and in part also of just sheer in incompetence on part of the European officials, there is no very convincing narrative coming out of Brussels on why it's important to have the European Union, what are its benefits and so on. And the Brexit campaign, uh, which was of course conducted by the British government at the time, which uh, which very clearly told Brussels stay out of this uh, is yet a different story. But at the same time, we have uh, a similar general pattern that the Remain campaign really didn't did not make the case for Europe very convincingly. All they could do is uh, all they did was uh, uh, stoking fears of uh, the um, uh, very negative effects of Brexit and all of that or man much of that is correct uh, but they did not at all manage to give a positive uh, story about why it's uh, beneficial to be in the European Union uh, why, what is what is positive about Britain's part in that in that entity. Do you think to any degree as well, the Remain side maybe didn't take the threat of Brexit seriously enough that they looked at what was being proposed and said, there's no way, you know, in our opinion, for all of these reasons, you know, fear mongering is not going to work. Uh, and maybe there was a level of, of arrogance. I don't know if that's the right word, arrogance or complacency and just said, this is, this is, this is crazy. There's no way that a majority of voters are going to vote for, for a it, the 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 campaign that Nigel Farage and others are are putting forth. Oh, yeah, I think so. And uh, David Cameron, of course, had uh, two successful experiences of uh, holding referendums to depose of certain topics. He agreed to, to hold early in his term a referendum on electoral reform because his then coalition partner, the Liberal Democrats, wanted that. He campaigned against it and uh, the people rejected it, so he was happy. The same thing happened with the Scottish independence referendum. He allowed a referendum. Uh, there was a majority for Scotland to remain inside of the United Kingdom. So I think this m might have contributed to an overconfidence uh, in this mechanism of just holding a referendum to sort of deal with a topic once and for all. And he clearly wanted to get rid of this topic because it's very divisive for his own party. And uh, for, for him, that was uh, that was his gamble to sort of uh, keep that out of the election and depose of it for the time of his uh, premiership. But uh, yeah, clearly it did not work. Well, this seems like the perfect time to take a little break before we continue this interesting discussion on the rise of nationalism in Europe. So we will be right back. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. 
And we're back with Dr. Hurlman uh, talking about nationalism in European countries. So before the break, we were talking a little bit more generally about about the status and the rise of nationalism in Europe. Um, we'd like to now focus questions a little bit more on specific cases, so individual countries. Um, next month, I have it written here, March 17th, I hope that's correct, next month uh, in, in the Netherlands, we have the general election. Um, and uh, similar to many other European countries, there is a nationalist party. Um, the Party for Freedom, or PVV. Um, and if you look at polling uh, right now, although it is it is reverted back a little bit more to the mean, there was a spike in support, and I think even most recent polls do show that PVV has either the highest or second highest support among likely voters. Um, having said that, given the situation, um, the, the political situation in that country, uh, even though it seems unlikely that the Party for Freedom will be able to form a governing coalition, um, what consequences do you think its present success and popularity could have on the upcoming election, um, both in that country and in other European states? Well, the party's uh, popularity has already had significant conflict uh, consequences in Dutch politics. Um, the Netherlands used to be always an example for a particularly liberal country in, in many respects, including um, treatment of uh, immigrants and minorities. And uh, that has clearly shifted because other parties have uh, taken over the message that the Wilders and the uh, Freedom Party have advocated. So I think that is really the main effect of uh, this party's popularity, that uh, the current prime minister, Mark Rutte, has uh, campaigned with lots of slogans that uh, are not that different from what we hear from uh, from Wilders and, and his uh, Freedom Party. And uh, even on the left side of the political spectrum, uh, some people have uh, taken over some of these anti-immigration messages. Uh, so that has had a major effect on, on Dutch politics. Uh, as far as the immediate election is concerned, you're right that uh, the Freedom Party uh, is right now uh, according to the polls, the strongest party, but at a level of between 20 and 25 percent or so in a parliamentary system with a proportional electoral system, that means just that. So they will have 20 to 25 percent in the parliament. Um, and the other parties have so far indicated that they are not interested in forming a government with this party. So uh, it's unlikely that they will have a direct influence on the government, but they, they are pushing their, their issues issues and uh, pushing the entire political spectrum more to the right. So you've spoken about how uh, PPV's success will impact Netherlands politics. Could you elaborate a little bit on the implications outside of politics, like with their success, what will be the consequences of, of them uh, dominating? in the country? Well, it has an effect on the general social climate, uh, on uh, not only on policies towards migration. Um, the Netherlands uh, has always been a model of multiculturalism, but they are one of the few countries where we can actually see in Europe significant policy reversals of multiculturalism. A lot of this anti-multicultural discourse in Europe is primarily discourse, but people who actually study the policies say not so much has changed. Um, but in the Netherlands, it has. So we, we have seen uh, political changes, and those have an effect on society uh, in that, uh, well, the general climate has become less receptive to 
minorities, visual minorities, people with immigrant uh, immigrant backgrounds, refugees, and all that. Does that extend to other other realms of social policy? I'm I'm I I can't claim to know much about the um, the the manifesto for PVV, but in terms of social policy, does this shift to the right have an impact as well on things like uh, uh, same-sex marriage or um, recreational drugs or uh, abortion or, or things like that? Is that is this really mostly impacting issues pertaining to immigration, or has this right-shifting trend? Will it or has it, in your opinion, also affected other realms of social policy in the country? Much less so, because the interesting thing about these parties is that while they are sort of very uh, far right on the immigration issue, they are often uh, more liberal on these other social issues that mm-hmm. you're mentioning. That's the same in France, by the way, with uh, Marine Le Pen, who has been, uh, who has been, for instance, on issues of homosexuality and so on, trying to to be fairly mainstream in acceptance of that. And so that is the same in in the Netherlands as well. Uh, it's primarily focused on uh, on this uh, migration, diversity, um, those types of issues. Speaking of Marine Le Pen, <laughs> let's shift over to the rise of nationalism in the context of France. Of course, we have the the upcoming uh, elections. I believe this May. Mm-hmm. Um, so. The National Front, they've been present, as you said, nationalism is not new, it's not a new concept, so they've been present in French politics for decades now, but have only experienced this kind of significant mainstream success since probably 2011. Um, So in this context, what do you think has specifically caused that change in fortune for this party? Well, I think these are some of the same issues that we discussed earlier, the the backlash against globalization, mm-hmm. the refugee crisis and so on, but also an attempt by Marine Le Pen to modernize the party, if you will. Uh, her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, founded the party and was the longtime leader. Um, but uh, he was, uh, uh, well, in, in a way much more blatantly xenophobe and anti-Semitic and so on than his daughter Marine, who who had tried to sort of shift the party more towards the mainstream in certain respects and to make it thus more electable. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that has contributed, um, obviously, to the success in addition to really the failure of the past two French presidents from different parties, Nicolas Sarkozy from the Conservative Party and now François Hollande, uh, whose presidencies both ended in a disappointing failure in the case of Hollande so much that he's not even running again because it would have been next to impossible for him to to be a serious contender. Uh, So these parties uh, um, have uh, clearly not been successful in power. Uh, Sarkozy was seen as being too uh, neoliberal, too closely aligned with Germany in the Eurozone crisis. Hollande came in to say uh, he will now focus on social issues, justice issues, and so on, but very quickly discovered that it's very difficult in the EU context for a government to significant make significant shifts. Then he um, 
in the middle of this term uh, tried to ins uh, ins uh, put in place a few reforms that were actually perceived as being um, neoliberally inspired as well which ran against what he campaigned on so that sort of totally demolished his popularity and that's why Marine Le Pen has a particular credibility when with her general populist message of all the elites are corrupt and failing us and we need uh, an alternative to that. If by all indications right now, um, it appears uh, likely or there's a very good chance that Marine Le Pen will uh, at least make it to the runoff. Um, in, so just a bit of context for those of you who aren't um, very familiar with the presidential electoral system in France. If no candidate receives a majority of the vote on the, the first election in April, I believe the top two candidates go to a runoff in May. So it looks... It, it, it appears to be very likely that Marine Le Pen will at least make it to the runoff. But do you think that she has a high uh, or a likely chance of actually being elected president once it's just her and one other individual? That's the big question. And the opinion polls do not suggest so. They show currently that uh, whoever will be the other candidate running against her in the runoff election be it the conservative candidate Francois Fillon or the independent candidate uh, Macron who is uh, currently um, uh, tr uh, discussed by many as being the favorite of being elected they would according to opinion polls decisively beat Marine Le Pen in the runoff election because it seems that uh, uh, the conservatives and the socialists and centrist voters would all unite behind such a candidate to prevent Le Pen from winning. But that's what we thought about Donald Trump. That's what we thought about Brexit. So uh, what we have learned there is that uh, opinion polls do not necessarily pick up adequately support for populist candidates because uh, there's a certain social desirability effect. Some people do not admit in an opinion polling scenario that they support such a seemingly unpleasant candidate. Um, and, and that is here as well, obviously, a, a, a factor of uncertainty. Let's speak in hypothetical terms then. A national front victory, what would this mean for France? Like, Do you think that there will be this kind of Brexit withdrawal as Le Pen has kind of promised? She has promised to hold, well, to first oh, negotiate with the yeah. EU on on a far-reaching uh, reversal of competencies back to France, which is very unlikely the other member states would agree to. Uh, and if that is not uh, successful, she wants to hold a referendum on Frexit, or whatever you want to call it, so France's exit from the European Union. Um, I would not be sure of the outcome of such a decision because I don't think Europe is the main topic uh, in the election campaign right now. Um, I could well see a scenario where she wins the presidency but loses such a referendum. We should also uh, keep in mind that uh, France is a semi-presidential system. So uh, in June, I believe there will be parliamentary elections and it's not assured that uh, the party of whoever wins the presidency will also win then. Uh, so 
there could be uh, there would definitely be instability um, and it's difficult to predict what exactly would happen what is very clear is that this would be a very very decisive blow to the European Union and even if France did not decide to withdraw in the end it would be seen as one further country and in this case a founding member of the European Union turning away from the EU so it I find it very difficult to see how the EU would would uh, recover from from that blow. You really touched on. I was I was getting ready to ask you that more or less that <laughs> exact question, but keeping the the hypotheticals going, and I think I think it's always interesting to it, when looking at um, international politics and, and and the impact it can have on policy. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And I think, um, in my opinion. Um, speaking just for, for myself, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States speaks to that, hope for the best, but be ready in case that doesn't happen. If Marine Le Pen uh, gets elected president, if the National Front has successful um, parliamentary elections um, later on in the year, if there's a referendum held and if that were to be successful, so if we did witness a Frexit, mm-hmm. um, would that really be the... the, the to 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 speak in cliches, would that be the straw that broke the camel's back? Would that could could the European Union survive losing Britain and France? I, mean, I cannot see that honestly. Um, I would like to be positive, but uh, I cannot see that. Britain has always been a very special case in the EU. They joined not until the 1970s. Uh, Britain was always the country with the highest uh, Euroscepticism. So it's not entirely surprising that Britain voted to leave the European Union. France is a founding member. Core EU institutions are located there. Um, I I cannot see the EU without France. Um, And again, that I don't think would mean going back to 28 individual member states, but there would be then more newer, smaller uh, unions probably emerging between the countries. I hope it doesn't come to that. I am f- reasonably optimistic it doesn't come to that, but um, I cannot see a European Union without France. And in keeping with the idea of hoping for the best but preparing for the worst, what can you speak to what currently uh, is the EU doing about this in these elections? So, you know, Brexit happened and, you know, maybe the EU didn't do enough. Uh, and there's nothing much they can do about it now, but they still have an ability to influence in some way or get involved in these these elections that are coming up, both in the Netherlands and in France. And we have Germany um, having elections later this year as well. What, to your knowledge, what is the EU doing right now to try and, I guess, watching survive? In, watching in awe what, what is happening. So there, there's not much going on. I mean, on a smaller scale, the European Parliament and, and the... Uh, uh, mainstream f- uh, groups in the European Parliament have launched a couple of investigations into the far-right groups' financial behavior and so on. So they they signal they would no longer uh, no longer want to really give them the forum of the European Parliament to spread their anti-EU messages. Um, but uh, the EU traditionally does not intervene in national elections in member states and I think generally that's a good practice um, and uh, that uh, that's why they didn't really intervene in Brexit and the British government at the time asked them to stay out of this and uh, the EU is also not actively intervening in, in the French election. Uh, it could backfire. In the last election uh, Angela Merkel campaigned with Sarkozy and that wasn't 
in the end very helpful. Uh, so uh, same thing applies here. Uh, but really the EU at the moment is somewhat paralyzed, just waiting for these elections, hoping uh, that they pass and then they can move uh, forward. The uh, upcoming elections in Germany, for instance, are much less of a threat and that could then signal the shift to a more positive message. Well, I guess then as EU members sit and wait to see what happens, so uh, shall we and the rest of the world. Um, I think we'll bring that uh, the conversation to a close then. Thank you, Dr. Holman, for, for coming in today and speaking on these topics. Um, it's, it's nice to have uh, a more knowledgeable perspective on this. I think it's very interesting, um, given that we have elections coming up in the next few months, multiple elections, and, and really seeing, you know, this is a... This is an interesting time. I, there are very clear diverging paths on, on what could happen. And, and Europe is such a consequential continent. And the European Union is such a consequential institution. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting time to be, uh, to be uh, studying international affairs and international policy. Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more with your, your saying, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. I think that's what we need to hold on and do in these times. Because uh, we've we've definitely had some unexpected outcomes come our way over the last uh, the last uh, the, the most recent times. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Herman, again, we thank you very much for coming in and speaking with us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at www.policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policy talks pod for updates and related content if you have any feedback comments or suggestions we'd love to hear from you send us an email or reach us on facebook or twitter we'd also like to recognize and thank the entire team that helped put this episode together on the research side we thank mark hyken josiah witherspoon and Rianne foley and for audio and production we thank our wonderful producer joe venkatesh until next time i'm mitch and I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks.